0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Jack Bradley, in for Stefania Cox, here are today's top stories. Former President Trump raises $2 million just hours after his Tuesday arraignment, and the House rejects a bid to censure Congressman Adam Schiff for his comments on Trump. The University of Delaware is storing over 1,800 boxes of President Biden's Senate records, but says it doesn't have to show them to the public. The university explains its reason to Delaware's highest court. House Republicans taking the most concrete step yet toward impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Find out what's in their report and how the DHS and Democrats are responding. Unaccompanied minors are likely the most vulnerable group crossing America's southern border. Lawmakers are looking for ways to ensure their safety. Could the states get together and change the constitution? We speak with a man who's been on that mission for years. Find out if he thinks the California governor's gun control amendment could make it. The House today rejected a Republican effort to censure Democratic lawmaker for his role in probing former President Trump. And Trump got a, a fundraising jolt following his indictment. NTD's Iris Tau is joining us live from the White House. Iris, what can you tell us?
1: Hey, good evening, Jack. So yes, as we see now that former President Trump is facing another indictment and is decrying what he calls political persecution from now and in the past, House Republicans took action to try to censure a California Democrat named Adam Schiff, who was Basically spearheading efforts in accusing Trump of colluding Russia of colluding with Russia in the past, but today the resolution to try to censure Schiff was struck down because 20 Republicans voted with Democrats in opposing the measure. But that said, Congressman Anna Polina Luna, who was the person who first brought up this resolution, and told the Epoch Times today that their efforts to try to condemn Schiff will not stop. Let's take a listen.
2: I think they probably didn't read the bill because there's a lot of my colleagues down there that were shocked that 20 people would even do that. And so I think right now you guys will see exactly who they are. And then I just like I told them right now, Adam Schiff is going to be censured eventually.
1: So as these actions unfold in the House, we know that Trump is indicted and was just arraigned yesterday in Miami. But we also know that actually, reportedly, Trump's campaign raised over $2 million hours after his indictment in Miami in a fundraising event. So that is some news. And Trump, of course, is trying to make the message heard that he is being treated unfairly, but will not back down. Watch
3: threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law.
1: And in that speech last night, Trump also attacked the special counsel in his case, Jack Smith, by calling him a thug. But today, the attorney general, Merrick Garland, defended Jack Smith by calling him a veteran career prosecutor who is committed to integrity and the rule of law. Jack.
0: Well, thank you, Iris. There's certainly a lot happening there. The Delaware Supreme Court today heard arguments about President Biden's Senate records, Biden made an agreement with Delaware University that prohibits it from releasing the records. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details.
4: Since 2020, conservative foundation Judicial Watch and media outlet The Daily Caller have been pushing for the release of President Biden's Senate records. The one thousand eight hundred fifty boxes of records have been maintained at the University of Delaware since 2012. The university states on its website that President Biden donated his senatorial papers to the University of Delaware pursuant to an agreement that prohibits the university from providing public access to those papers until they have been properly processed and archived. It claimed in its filing papers that under Delaware law, only records related to spending public funds are accessible. The plaintiffs now want to see the university's agreement with Biden and all communications related to that agreement. They also want to know who's funding the project. Their attorneys said the university's supplemented affidavit failed to justify its denial of their requests for three reasons.
5: Most importantly, it is ambiguous. Second, the university performed no search related to the requests. It reviewed no documents apart from the gift agreement, but rather relies on previous inquiries of university staff. And finally, Uh, The supplemented affidavit is largely based on hearsay.
4: One of the justices asked why the affidavit wasn't good enough. Other than your view that that's implausible, she says it. It's under oath. She's a member of
6: this bar. Why should the superior court of this court not take her at her word?
4: The plaintiff's attorney said the university should review records to determine whether public funds are used for other costs, such as for the buildings that store Biden's records. The university's lawyer argued that a private institution should be treated differently than a state agency.
7: If you're a state agency, every document you have is a public record and it's disclosable unless you find in the statute a specific exception. The university is the reverse. None of your documents are public records unless they relate to the expenditure of public funds.
4: The court declined to rule on the case today, but if the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, the university will have to provide information on how it funds the storage of Biden's documents, and it may have to provide information on the secret agreement that it has with Biden to block access to the documents. Jack?
0: Thank you, Arlene. The GOP-led House takes its most concrete step yet toward impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, citing an investigation that he's derelict in his handling the southern border. NTD's Molina Wisecup has the details from Capitol Hill.
8: The DHS and Democrats are brushing this off as a political attack. They say Republicans are only launching this investigation because they take issue with the border policies coming from the Biden administration. The DHS instead says Congress should focus on updating what they say are outdated immigration laws. Now, just to take a step back and look at what the GOP-led Homeland Security Committee is actually doing here, they're launching a five-phase investigation into DHS Secretary Mayorkas' what they call his inability to uphold the Constitution in securing our borders. Congressman Mark Green, who's the chairman of the committee, said earlier that we have an issue right now, especially with the influx of illegal immigrants coming from China, highlighting a recent phenomenon. Take a look.
9: How about 10,000 Chinese nationals illegally crossing into the United States, being released into our country this fiscal year? many of whom are military-age men, many with known ties to the PLA, ties to the CCP, who have crossed our southern border and just been released by Secretary Mayorkas into the United States. We have no idea who these people are. And it's very likely, using Russia's template of sending military personnel into into Ukraine, China is doing the same in the United States.
8: And after investigating Mayorkas for about 12 weeks, the committee will then hand over its findings to the Judiciary Committee, which would be responsible for launching those impeachment proceedings. Chairman Green was asked about whether or not the Republican-led House has the votes to impeach Mayorkas. Green responded, saying that specifically the word impeachment has not come up yet. But in the past, Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that this investigation will start and wherever that investigation leads, that's where they'll go, considering impeachment as well. Now, as for the Senate side, it does take two-thirds of the Senate to convict Mayorkas, which would be highly unlikely in the Democrat-controlled Chamber. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News.
0: MORE ON THE BORDER CRISIS. HOW CAN THE UNITED STATES ENSURE THE SAFETY OF UNACCOMPANIED MINORS CROSSING THE SOUTHERN BORDER? LAWMAKERS IN WASHINGTON LOOKED FOR WAYS TO HELP PROTECT THESE VULNERABLE CHILDREN. NTD'S JASON PERRY REPORTS.
10: 85,000 UNACCOMPANIED CHILDREN. HHS IS RESPONSIBLE FOR THEM. And they can't find them. They don't know if they're dead or alive or trafficked or being worked.
11: In a hearing by the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Marsha Blackburn and others look for ways to ensure the safety of unaccompanied minors who cross the southern border. Senator Josh Hawley shared the story of an unaccompanied 15-year-old girl, as reported by the New York Times.
9: Carolina, every 10 seconds, has to stuff a sealed plastic bag of cereal into a passing yellow carton. It's dangerous work. Fast-moving pulleys and gears that have torn off fingers and ripped open a woman's scalp. The factory was full of underage workers.
11: Senator Hawley said he asked Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas about unaccompanied minors at a previous hearing.
9: What he told me was, oh, it's not my problem. We don't have anything to do with it. Not my problem. Now we have a new report from HHS where they say it's not their problem. Amazing how this works. Nobody's responsible.
11: But Senator Alex Padilla pointed at the previous administration for the large amounts of unaccompanied minors.
9: The
12: reality is that this problem is another direct result of our broken immigration system. During the Trump administration, our immigration system became so restrictive that families could not come to our border to apply for asylum together. This forced parents to send their kids Alone, so at least they could escape
11: to find safety. Over 300,000 unaccompanied minors have been handed off to sponsors in the United States since President Biden took office. And Senator Lindsey Graham highlighted one policy in particular.
1: We've created a demand for human smugglers to get children involved in the smuggling process because if you can get a child, whether it's a family member or not, you claim it to be a family then the chance of you being deported has gone way down. Lawmakers said that
11: once some children arrive in America, they will be taken back to Mexico to appear as a son or a daughter for other adults trying to enter the U.S. And this is what they call child recycling. And one way to help prevent that is DNA testing.
10: But like most Trump era border policies, the Biden administration chose to end that. It is a 45 minute test. It tells you if a child is related to a person or not. It would put a stop to much of this child recycling, which is disgusting.
11: There was a lot of back and forth over why there were no government officials at the hearing to testify about unaccompanied minors. But Chairman Senator Dick Durbin said he plans to have government officials testify at a later hearing. Jason Perry in TD News.
0: Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom wants a 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution related to gun restrictions, but not everyone is on board. His plan for an amendment would raise the minimum age to purchase a gun from 18 to 21. It would also require universal background checks, set a, quote, reasonable waiting period for gun purchases, and also ban, quote, the civilian purchase of assault weapons, all while keeping the Second Amendment unchanged. Newsom said he plans to invoke Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution by calling a Convention of States to officially propose the amendment. He'll need two-thirds of the U.S. states to agree. The only other way to propose the amendment would be a two-thirds majority vote in both houses of Congress. And here to speak with us about this is Mark Meckler, the founder of Convention of States Action. His organization also seeks to propose amendments to the U.S. Constitution, but to limit the scope of the federal government. Mark Meckler, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. So what do you think of Newsom's invoking the Article 5 of the Constitution to introduce a 28th Amendment? You know, I have
12: a kind of layered reaction to it. First, I want to say I think it's fantastic. Uh, Welcome to the idea that the right way to amend the United States Constitution is by the states calling an Article 5 convention. Universally, the left has been against this. Common cause, center on budget and policy priorities, move MoveOn.org, all of them signed a petition against this. And so to see a very left-wing governor like Gavin Newsom break away from the left-wing crowd is pretty amazing. We're going to be watching to see, do all these groups attack him the way that they attack us? So that's kind of layer one. Is I'm just kind of amazed by it. Uh, layer two is amusement, because I know the process. It takes 34 states to call a convention. Very high bar, difficult to get to. He essentially wants to gut the Second Amendment. Uh, that means it would take 34 states who even want to get into a convention to do that. Those numbers are impossible. And so I think it's kind of funny that he's trying to do this as well.
0: And why do you think that a convention is necessary now?
12: You know, because Washington, D.C. will never do what the American people wants it to do. For example, very specifically, 85 percent of Americans, when polled over the last 30 years, it's roughly 80 85 percent say they're in favor of term limits for Congress. Congress will never propose term limits for Congress. That's not human nature. Human beings don't do that to themselves. Or 80 to 85 percent of Americans say we should have some form of balanced budget amendment. They'll never do that either. Or our call to limit the scope and the power of the federal government, they'll never limit their own scope and power. So what the framers told us when they put in the second clause of Article 5 in the Constitution was that the federal government will run away eventually. It will never restrain its own power. And only the states are going to be able to do that.
0: And has something like this ever happened before
12: it hasn't which is one of the most amazing things about this is in almost 250 years of constitutional history we've never called a convention we've gotten close a couple of times the last time was 1982 uh, it takes 34 states to call a convention we had 32 states calling for a balanced budget convention uh, that got pushed back and it got pushed back by a uh, conglomeration of folks on the left the afl-cil leading the way and on the right it was somebody from uh, Eagle Forum by the name of Phyllis Schlafly. Uh, they were both claiming Runaway Convention. We had a $4 trillion debt back then in 1982, a lot of money, but seems small compared to the $32 trillion we have now. So it proves the federal government's never going to limit itself, and we're going
0: to have to do that. And so how much support have you received, and how close are you to holding this convention?
12: And we've received more support than I ever thought possible. Over 5.3 million people are involved. We've passed in 20 out of the 34 necessary states. We have endorsements from people like Mark Levin and Ben Shapiro and Sean Hannity, pretty much the who's who of talkers on radio and television, uh, politicians like, uh, for example, in the presidential race. We've got uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has endorsed, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy just endorsed. So Nikki Haley spoken positively about it in the past, so it's becoming a presidential issue. So we have the primary support of conservatives. We're 14 states away from pulling it off. North Carolina is going to be the 21st state. I think we've just passed the House of Representatives. We're about to pass the Senate. That'll bring us within 13 states. We're within striking distance. It's going to happen in the next few years.
0: Well, it seems like it would be a very unprecedented event and uh, something big to occur. Mark Meckler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Up next, violence against pro-life students. A new report shows a drastic increase in attacks on college campuses since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Our reporter speaks with the organization behind the report. And the Fed skips an interest rate hike today, but signals more to come later this year, and that the inflation fight has a long way to go. More in just a moment on NTD News. Now a follow-up on the story we reported on last night. A new report shows record numbers of pro-life activists are being silenced on college campuses. NTD's Erin Pazdar spoke with the organization publishing that report.
13: Students for Life of America on Tuesday released a new report regarding pro-life activism on college campuses. The report shows numbers for the 2022-23 school year, the first year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It found more than 100 free speech violations against pro-life students, which is three times higher than the year before. Most of those violations allegedly manifested in the form of destruction or theft of property.
14: We see them go out and face cyberbullying, get death threats, they're getting stalked, even beaten for their pro-life beliefs.
13: Olivia Garza is a legal correspondent for Students for Life of America. She gave me a recent example of such an incident.
14: One of my co workers was recently driving on campus and she parked her car in New York and her tire was completely destroyed by someone who was angry that she was on campus.
13: Garza says that's why the organization tells pro life activists it's better not to openly show their abortion stance, such as having bumper stickers on their car, for example. If something like that happens on a college campus, do the schools usually? ensure that similar things don't take place again in the future?
14: I would say it's about a 50-50 scenario. We'll either send a demand letter and the school will ghost us. And so we have to keep pushing and keep fighting for our students' free speech rights to be protected on campus, or we see an immediate victory.
13: She added that when incidents of harassment take place, Students for Life offers legal support to the victims. What can be done to encourage open dialogue and encourage conversation and have people listen to each other instead of people arguing and fighting over such a topic?
14: I think that the pro-life side, especially here at Students for Life of America, we're doing everything that we can to have positive, impactful conversations on campus and to promote dialogue. And unfortunately, I don't think that many universities are are really taking care of their free speech policies
13: last month the national abortion federation published a similar report it shows that violence against abortion providers also increased after roe v wade was overturned according to that report stalkings burglaries and more against abortion providers increased significantly during 2022 Ariane pastar ntd news
0: senate republicans are introducing a bill addressing student loans and college tuitions This comes as the Supreme Court is expected to rule on President Biden's student loan cancellation.
6: Five GOP senators introduced a package Wednesday aimed at addressing the student loan crisis and lowering the costs of higher education. They said it addresses the root causes of the problem. That is, students making poor decisions and colleges exploiting the system.
15: It empowers students to make educational decisions that put them on the track to both academically and financially succeed. It simplifies the student loan borrowing and repayment process so students don't have to take out more loans than they need and can navigate the student loan process without confusion.
6: Called the Lowering Education Cost and Debt Act, the package contains five bills. Senators who co-sponsored the package said it's a better alternative to President Biden's plan to cancel student loans. They criticized Biden's plan, saying it merely transfers the burden from students to taxpayers and ignores personal responsibility.
15: According to the Center for Responsible Federal Budget, if this student debt loan transfer goes into effect, students and taxpayers will be back (coughs) in the same situation in five years. Total debt at that point will be $1.6 trillion. This is not a fix. This is merely a Band-Aid.
6: The Supreme Court is expected to rule on Biden's student loan forgiveness plan in late June or early July. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News.
0: The Federal Reserve kept interest rates unchanged today, but signaled another half-percentage point hike may be coming by the end of this year. For more details, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an expert who's closely following the Fed's actions.
16: And here to talk to me is Sam Burns, chief strategist at Mill Street Research. Now, we'll we'll talk about what Powell said in in the remarks, but first I I want to get your first reactions on the pause that we got today. What do you think?
15: Well, I think they would pretty well telegraphed that they were going to pause today. Uh, they, they tend to want to get the, uh, the next meeting's messaging out uh, beforehand, and they didn't want to surprise people too much. Uh, but they did apparently uh, kind of have to balance it out with uh, an increase in the, uh, the projections for later this year. They raised the, uh, the dot plot uh, median for year end um, from 5.1 to 5.6. And I think that's really the, the big change uh, and the some of the surprise that happened in this meeting rather than the pause itself. And how many hikes would that uh, uh, approximate to? So it looks like about two more hikes this year. Um, whereas before today, it been maybe one or maybe even zero hikes this year. Uh, that they had the, the last uh, projection was at 5.1, which is roughly where we are now. Uh, now they're at 5.6. So it's a 50 basis point increase in the year end projections uh, based on the you know the median of the FOMC members. So uh, they always say it's it's not a you know uh, a guarantee or anything, but that seems to be the way they're thinking right now. And what about next year, 2024? What are the projections? Uh, they're seeing uh, rates come down next year, uh, more like uh, 4.5% or something like, like that by year end next year. So still uh, above the long run uh, you know, projection, but, but coming down uh, next year. So I think the view is that uh, by the time we get to the end of this year, uh, things will have slowed down enough that they can start thinking about cuts next year, uh, but certainly no cuts this year and potentially some more hikes this year. Usually
16: when the Fed does indeed cut rates it usually coincides with some sort of economic downturn. Um, so, how likely would we get a, a rate cut next year?
15: Uh, my guess is it's pretty likely that we'd get at least some rate cuts. I think if we do get to five and a quarter or five and a half percent by the end of this year, that's a pretty high rate relative to where I think inflation will be and where rates have been historically. Uh, so, I think that's pretty tight. I think you could certainly uh, make uh, justify a, a real lower rate than that next year if growth slows and if inflation comes down as it's projected to. you know If you're in the 25 to 3% inflation rate or lower, I think a 5 or 5.5% policy rate would look too high. So you could definitely come down from there and still be uh, without a crisis and, and still kind of have a, have a normal rate environment. Thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Bud Light is no longer the top-selling beer in the U.S. Modelo Especial took the spot in May. The, following, uh, the fallout from the brand's engagement with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney continues to hurt the brand. Sales volume of Bud Light plunged by over 24% in the week ending June 3rd. It extends the decline triggered when the brand rolled out a personalized beer can featuring the face of Mulvaney. Mulvaney, who has ten, over 10 million followers on TikTok, posted a series of videos plugging Bud Light and showing off the personalized can. This sparked outrage among many conservatives, some who accused the brand of promoting a transgender agenda and called for a boycott. Silicon Valley flourishes with its many companies and businesses, but cities like San Jose are dealing with homelessness. And as a response, San Jose has passed a new budget intending to improve the city, NTD's David Lamb reports.
16: On Tuesday, the council voted 10 to one to approve Mayor Matt Mahan's $5.2 billion budget for the next fiscal year, which he said was focused on what the community wants. I'm calling it the back to basics budget with a focus on homelessness, public safety, and cleaning up the city, which are the, the big three items that I heard about across the city during the mayor's race over and over again from people of all ages, all backgrounds, small business owners and, and residents alike. San Jose is heading into next year with a $35 million surplus. Although Mayhan wanted more focus on immediate short-term units, the council settled for spending $93 million on affordable housing. Mayhan says the trade-off is between short-term modular units that are cost-effective versus long-term apartment buildings. We have a deficit of tens of thousands Of affordable housing units and it's going to take us decades unfortunately to build up toward where we need to be and in the meantime i don't think anyone should be left to live and die in a tent encampment in our city so we're we're trying to find that balance and make as much progress on both fronts as we can while putting a little more emphasis on the incredible human suffering we see on our streets today the city announced recently that overall homelessness decreased by 4.7 percent since 2022 San Jose is the largest city in the Bay Area with nearly 1 million residents. By comparison, San Francisco, which deals with open drug use and encampments, has a smaller population than San Jose, but with a proposed budget of $14.6 billion, almost three times as that of San Jose. David Lamb, NTD News, California.
0: Up next, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will make his long anticipated trip to China this weekend. What message is the Biden administration sending and what's the view of the Chinese regime? And Germany releases a national security strategy aimed at China. The document describes the regime as a growing threat. We'll bring you the details after the break. Welcome back. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Beijing this weekend to meet with his Chinese counterpart. Author Bradley Thayer speaks with NTD's Tiffany Meyer on how the two sides are seeing the upcoming meeting.
17: Bradley Thayer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Tiffany. It's my pleasure to join you. So Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to China after all he was supposed to go in February and then we had the spy balloon incident and he is expected there this weekend now they've already talked on the phone. He was speaking with China's foreign minister Gang today and it seems there's a less than warm welcome in a way because Gang was warning him not to interfere in the country's own affairs like Taiwan. This comes as the U.S. sees a thaw with Beijing. So how do you read this upcoming visit? Well,
3: the visit is uh, the Chinese are doing what the the Chinese typically do, and that was to humiliate the Biden administration uh, by uh, holding Blinken in his desperate effort uh, to meet with his Chinese colleagues at at arm's length. So the Chinese have stiff-armed the United States. Um, Blinken has got his wish. He is going to be able to go to China, as you uh, referenced but it's under humiliating conditions, and it's part of a larger theme that we're seeing with the Biden administration, where there's a desperate effort to return to the engagement policy, the flawed engagement policy, which we pursued uh, for a generation uh, with China once the Cold War ended, that made China rich. And so, uh, Blinken is sadly um, pursuing, just as what, what the Biden administration always has done, It's humiliating for the administration, and it's
17: humiliating for the United States. And on that humiliation part, is this a power struggle in a way? How does this play into US-China policy? Is China saying they have the upper hand? Absolutely. It's political warfare, and the
3: Chinese are making Blinken a supplicant. Uh, He's coming hand in hand to beg China for a meeting. Why they're so desperate to meet is a bit curious, and also Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin at the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore at the beginning of June, if you recall that incident as well, where um, the Chinese defense minister refused to meet with him. They did have a handshake, but it shows really the Biden administration's efforts to turn back the clock and to try to go back to a happy time, at least from their perspective, uh, where China was accommodated and the United States didn't stand in its way. Uh, so it's a, again, a lamentable situation and it's a victory in
17: political warfare for China. And, Bradley, you mentioned the term cold war, and Mike Gallagher, who's the chairman of the House Select China Committee, is also calling this a new cold war between the U.S. and China this time. And in terms of Cuba, we just heard all these reports about a Chinese spy base there. The administration says it's been there since at least 2019. So if this is a new cold war, what are the differences this time?
3: Well, the differences are fundamentally that we may be weaker than China. Uh, So it it may be that we we won the Cold War with the Soviet Union. The Soviets had an economy about half of ours, or maybe two-thirds the size of ours. Uh, And they lost a marathon with us. It was a marathon race, and the Soviets couldn't keep up uh, because of their smaller economy, and that most of it went to defense. A large chunk of that went to uh, defense. And we had great allies like the Japanese, the South Koreans, and our NATO allies. Now the shoe may be on the other foot. China may have an economy which is larger than ours or the equal of ours. They may be more innovative. Uh, they may be militarily uh, have superiority or parity in some weapons platforms or things that matter like nuclear uh, capabilities, size of navies, size of, if you will, broadly militaries. So we may be the weaker side uh, in this Cold War, and that's um, very hard for those who are interested in sustaining freedom and and liberty uh, in uh, the United States, and to have those opportunities available um, in the 21st century, uh, so that freedom still has a voice over tyranny, as evinced by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that's what's at stake. And we may be weaker this time. It's not a good
17: situation. And, Bradley, with all the different areas covered today, any final thoughts you'd like to share?
3: Well, I'm very pleased that Mike Gallagher's uh, China uh, Committee is moving ahead and and has had some excellent testimony. So that's a very positive step done by uh, the House. And we need to see that reinforced uh, and uh, expanded. And let us hope that the Biden administration will recognize its folly and take some measures to uh, right the ship. Uh, to change course. It seems unlikely, but again, as Samuel Johnson said about second marriages, of course, that hope is a stronger force than experience. So let's let's have the hope that Biden administration might be able to change its policy with respect to the Chinese Communist Party. Thank you, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to join you today.
17: Bradley Thayer, thank you so much for your time.
0: A growing threat to global security, That's what Germany said about China in its first-ever national security blueprint. The document was released just days ahead of the Chinese Prime Minister's visit to Berlin. NTD's Sam Wong has more.
5: On Wednesday, Germany rolled out its first national security strategy, highlighting issues from supply chain disruptions to climate change. The document focuses heavily on Beijing, saying that the regime is claiming supremacy in Asia while exerting its economic power to reach political goals. The blueprint also calls for raising defense spending and creating an agency to fight cyber attacks. The German foreign minister said that China sees the world through a different lens.
6: And there we have great contradiction, and that is with the China issue. With the issues with regard to the rule of law, human rights, democracy, how do we see the world? Obviously completely differently.
5: The document also urges Germany to reduce reliance on other countries for commodities. This parallels the European Union's call to strategically limit economic dependencies on China. Trade between China and Germany broke a record last year. The value of imports and exports reached a staggering $320 billion, making the regime Germany's most crucial trading partner for the seventh year in a row. Top German companies rely heavily on the Chinese market, and many of its CEO are skeptical of cutting ties with the world's second-largest economy. Germany imports about two-thirds of its rare-earth minerals from China, These materials are crucial components in electronics, aerospace, and defense. They're also indispensable in batteries, semiconductors, and magnets in electric cars. Given the regime's supply chain dominance, many businesses agree that dependency on China for rare earth minerals needs to be addressed. Sam Wong, NTD News.
0: Russian President Putin said that Ukrainian forces had suffered catastrophic losses in its counteroffensive. His comments follow Kiev's claims that its troops had captured a handful of villages in the early stages of the offensive.
7: Russia's President Vladimir Putin on Tuesday claimed that Ukraine's counteroffensive has so far failed. He also said that Ukraine's human losses were 10 times higher than Russia's. The structure of their losses does not look good for them. What am I speaking about? Out of personnel losses, which are approaching the mark that could be called catastrophic. The structure of those losses is not good. Putin spoke to war reporters and military bloggers at the Kremlin in some of his widest ranging remarks since the invasion of Ukraine. He added that Russia lost 54 tanks, while Ukraine lost over 160 tanks and over 360 armored vehicles since Kiev's recent offensive. According to my calculations, it's 25 to 30 percent of the equipment that has been supplied to Ukraine from abroad. Putin also said that Russia was open to peace talks over Ukraine, but that the only way to stop the conflict was for Western countries to end their arms supplies to Kiev. Meanwhile Russian military TV says a senior commander of Russia's Chechen forces fighting in Ukraine has been wounded, but Ukrainian media reported earlier that the former separatist had been killed in an artillery strike in southern Ukraine.
0: A Belgian lobbyist has filed a lawsuit against the president of the EU Commission. For years, Ursula von der Leyen has refused to disclose details of her vaccine deal with Pfizer, despite requests from EU courts of justice and several complaints against her. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story.
18: Since 2021, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has been asked for details of her negotiations with Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla. The requests come from the New York Times, a Brussels NGO, the EU Ombudsman, members of the EU Parliament, and lobbyists, among others. But to this day, the Commission has remained silent on the topic. Von der Leyen negotiated a $38 billion contract in 2021 for 1.8 billion doses of the COVID vaccine. Yet the details of the deal are still hidden from the public. A Belgian lobbyist lodged a new criminal complaint in a Belgian court last week, accusing the commission president of corruption and destruction of documents. His lawyer, Jan Prota, says the negotiations with Pfizer were not authorized.
6: The EU members, through their heads of state, gave a special mandate to the Commission to buy these vaccines. So that's a power that the Commission didn't have in the first place. But we know from the report of the European Court of Auditors that the president of the European Commission began negotiating these contracts with Mr. Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, without having any mandate from the member states.
18: According to EU rules, the Commission must provide records of discussions, names of experts consulted and the agreed terms of any contract negotiations. But the EU Court of Auditors, which investigated this case, said last September that nothing had been submitted. A member of the EU Parliament told NTD she was able to see a leaked copy of the contract. One important point she mentioned was that Pfizer can't be held accountable for any side effects from the vaccine.
6: Personally, I have never seen a contract in which the seller isn't responsible for anything. It doesn't exist, whether for vaccines, cars or whatever, just so we know. So it's imperative that the terms of the deal be disclosed. And I know that the European ombudsman has asked for them, too. And I suppose it's often said that the absent party is always wrong. But when you have nothing to hide, you should come and testify.
18: The vaccine contract with Pfizer is the largest of all contracts the commission signed with pharmaceutical companies. David Dives, NTD News, Paris.
0: Coming up, fair competition in women's sports has become a partisan issue. We'll hear from a liberal athlete who's surprised by the politics. And recent polls show that the Golden State has become the lowest literacy rate in the U.S. But a separate poll reveals that it happens to be the most fun, too. Find out more when we come back. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with news on an important piece of sports legislation in the Senate.
9: That's right, Jack. Specifically called the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act of 2023, this bill, as you can imagine, prohibits schools from allowing biological males who identify as females into girls' sports. This bill cites this as a violation of Title IX which passed back in 1972, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in federally funded programs. Now, in April, this bill was passed in the Republican-controlled House by a 219 to 203 count, yet the voting was strictly along party lines, which baffles some of its supporters.
2: This isn't a partisan issue, and I'm really dismayed at the unfortunate fact that the only way for my voice and the voice of other liberal women to be heard is to actually go across the aisle and and extend this, um, this partnership on this particular issue.
9: Evie Edwards, a former NCAA athlete who continues to compete at a high level in multiple sports, went to Capitol Hill last week to rally support for the bill before the Senate. Edwards says there's a fairness purpose for why sports competitions have traditionally been separated by gender. In addition, she points out that how people identify their gender socially differs from biological facts.
2: We know that there's a spectrum of how individuals express themselves from a gender perspective, but when it comes to biology, it's immutable. And trans-identified men, and that would be men who desire to be seen as women, they cannot change their sex. They have XY chromosomes, they're unable to mute the biological advantages that they're their bodies um, have given them since birth.
9: Edwards, who started this campaign after having to race against a transgender athlete herself, says in addition to testosterone differences that lead to strength advantages, men have bigger hearts, more blood volume, and on different bone structures. She says the majority of people she discusses this with share the same opinion, while others reach out just to thank her for being willing to speak up. Yet the detractors, especially in media, are loud, labeling her position as anti-trans, or even as hate, something she disagrees with.
2: Categories exist for a reason. We have age categories, we have weight categories, and we have single sex-based categories in sport. It's just a matter of fairness. If it's not fair, it's not meaningful competition.
9: Now this bill is yet to be voted on in the Democrat-controlled Senate, where its prospects are considered bleak. This is Dave Martin for NTD News.
0: Different polls indicate that California has the lowest literacy rate in the nation, yet it's also ranked as the most fun state. We take a closer look at the numbers and ratings.
10: According to World Population Review, California is ranked the lowest in terms of literacy rate. 76.9% of adults can read and write. The state and its Department of Education have been blamed for the failing literacy rate. They have also been sued for extended remote learning instead of going back to school where students could receive quality education.
11: Other than our our public schools are are drastically underfunded, Um, teachers are not paid well enough to get really top-notch teachers, Um, and with the economy in California, it literally takes two parents working full-time jobs to be able to to make ends meet, let alone to try and get ahead ahead here. And it uh, it really sacrifices the family structure on getting kids to get to school and, and get that education and become literate. The thing is, uh,
12: attention span of the people is decreasing. I think that's why, that's why. We are not... And if you're reading a book, you need at least, like, four, five hours. It's boring. But uh, we have to, to work with the kids, the him, to, to involve them in, in literacy and uh, discover new things. After
10: California is New York, with 77.9% who are literate, followed by Florida, New Jersey, and Georgia. New Hampshire is ranked the highest in the nation for literacy, followed by Minnesota, North Dakota, Vermont, and South Dakota. But on the other hand, California is also ranked the most fun state in the
11: U.S. I think being the funnest state has a lot to do with the uh, access to the beaches, to the mountains, to every kind of activity you could ever imagine. We have movies, we have uh, you know pro sports teams, we have every kind of entertainment you can imagine.
12: The people prefer go get drunk, go get dance, go to the beach, then read a book. And uh, the books has to be uh, a bit more accurate, uh, more affordable for for the kids, for us even.
10: According to wallet hub a personal finance website, the Golden State is ranked number one for entertainment and recreation and number four for nightlife. Nevada is reversed at four for entertainment and recreation and number one for nightlife. Some of the reasons are because California has the most restaurants and movie theaters per capita. Others include number of attractions, ideal weather, beach quality, and music festivals.
0: If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jack Bradley. Good night.